Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Bonds buffeted, the Oracle warns on rising yields as the U.S. Senate debates more spending. Dose delivery J&J vaccines will be administered in the United States this week. And Saudi sanctions, President Biden due to explain why the crown prince was excused. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome to a new week and a new month here on First Move. Global stocks in March aligning with the proverb in like a lion out of February like a lamb. My edit there is the bond market blues settle with apologies to another bond as well. Stocks were both shaken and stirred by the spike in bond yields last week with the Nasdaq tumbling some 5%. Consolidation, though, in yields seemingly paving the way to a rally pre-market. As you can see, Japan also had a great day, up almost 2.5%. China also advanced despite posting the lowest factory activity data in nine months with slowing exports, the concern there. But in Hong Kong today, the Buffett bounce was in in full force on the Hang Seng. Chinese electric car maker BYD Bird rallying more than 8% after Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway disclosed a more than 8% stake. It's now one of Berkshire's largest holdings overall. Buffett, though, less upbeat on the outlook for Treasuries, saying in his annual shareholder letter that global bonds are a risky bet. He predicted a, quote, bleak future for fixed income. We'll discuss. The ongoing concern is that central banks, of course, will have to rein in financial support, so-called stimulus, surprised by the speed of economic recoveries driven by vaccines, reopenings and the massive U.S. economic aid bill that has just passed in the House. The Fed insisting that won't happen. Investors worrying nonetheless. Let's get to the drivers. Lots to discuss. As always, Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, great to have you with us. The problem and I have it in inverted commas, of a swift economic recovery feels like a first-class problem, quite yeah. frankly. And the Senate going to debate this week on what actually goes into that aid bill. That's right. I mean, I think you can think of this as the second half of the game, right? Um, now it's out of the hands of the House. It's into the hands of the Senate. And we know what's in the House version here that the Senate has to consider. And it's a lot. It's $1.9 trillion. It's cash payments to poor families every single month for their kids, $250 a month for kids six, uh, seven and older, uh, $300 for kids six and younger for the whole year. There's money for unemployment benefits. There's cash stimulus checks. There's money for schools, even 
even if they don't open. There's an earned income tax credit that is expanded and a child tax credit that I mentioned that's cash money for poor families every single month. There's a lot in here. You're going to hear Republicans talk about things that aren't COVID laser focused. And you're going to hear Democrats say everything in the economy today is COVID focused. You're going to hear Republicans complain about money for schools that don't, don't open. You'll hear Democrats say, well, you have to give money to schools that can't open so that they can open for new ventilation systems and the like. So I think there's going to be more debate this week, but it feels as though this is on the runway and moving down the runway, this COVID $1.9 trillion. And this is potentially legacy building stuff for this new president. And debate within the Democrats, of course, as well over what to do about the minimum wage. We know that some of them are saying, do not waste this opportunity to boost the minimum wage after years and years and years of not doing and and doing nothing to try and support the lowest earners in this country. Others are saying, look, we have to get this deal done. And can we perhaps get around this by penalizing some of the big companies that don't pay a high enough wage. And maybe the minimum wage debate is going to have to live to fight another day mm. in another in, a, in another form here. Uh, we know that the minimum wage at $7.25 an hour is too low to live on in this country. There's no question and no debate about that. Is $15 too high? I mean, you look at living wages uh, around the country and, and the, li- the living wage is well be above $15 in much of the country, if not all of the country here. Uh, the concern is putting on a minimum wage at a time, a higher minimum wage at a time when small businesses um, are struggling. I would remind people that the proposal there was for a gradual increase in the in minimum wage in the first place. And many companies, here's the free market at work, many companies are already doing this because they can't they can't attract and retain employees at $7.25 an hour. But those are big companies with deep pockets and billions of dollars in profits. Those aren't the small business. So the small business is still a very, very mighty mighty voice, a mighty stakeholder in this debate. I would remind folks, and we all talked about this on Friday, there is a lot in this $1.9 trillion, even without the minimum wage increase, that is, again, potentially legacy building for this president. And a reminder that President Trump's signature legislation, his tax cuts, also passed with no Democratic support, right? Right along party lines, razor thin. And back then we were told this is the consequences of, of elections, right? Well, here we are again with a razor thin mar- margin and this president going to try to have to muster every single Democrat to get this through with Kamala Harris, the vice president, as the, uh, as the, um, as the deciding vote. Yeah, it shouldn't be the way politics works, but it is the way politics works, quite frankly, at least at this moment in time. Now, we're talking about a massive spending bill. It also means massive amounts of borrowing. And it comes at a time when the Oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett, warning about a bleak future for bonds. Yeah, I'm sorry. I thought you were throwing sound there. Yes. Uh, and, And, you know, the Oracle of Omaha here is someone that we listen to as the reasoned, you know, voice in the room here. So it's a reminder, again, that the bond market is boss and always is boss, bigger than, <laughs> bigger than the stock market. Something to watch. But, you know, I will say here that the most important thing in the very near term, the right now, is getting that bridge between the crisis of the working family and the other side, when potentially you have a roaring economy next next year or late this year, and then you're worried potentially about inflation, what the bond market is telling us. But the right now is just so dire. What are the options, right? What are the options in the very near term other than rocket fuel on the right now uh, so that you have a robust recovery on the other end? I mean, that seems to be the conventional wisdom, at least among uh, the president and his team. 
Thank you very much to Christine Rimmons. My apologies there for that dramatic pause. Sorry. You were expecting something to come dramatic. there, like a piece of tape or a graphic or something. <laughs> I know. Just making sure you're awake this morning. Clearly, I'm not. <gasps> I'm barely awake. First day of March. I'll do better tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you tomorrow. Christine Rimmons. All right, more vaccine vigour this morning. Johnson & Johnson this time shipping out to health centres nationwide as we speak. The director of the Centres for Disease Control approved the use of their shot after the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, gave the vaccine the green light on Sunday. Elizabeth Cohen joins me now. We are moving swiftly here, Elizabeth. It's, there's an irony here, though, too, that we've gone from worrying whether people won't take a vaccine and go back for their second shot to worrying that they won't take one shot because the efficacy rate's a little bit lower. But for now, we just get the vaccines out there. Talk about J&J. Uh, Julia, let's talk about this. The bottom line here, as Dr. Anthony Fauci and others have said, is that let's not get too sort of stuck on these numbers. These are all good vaccines. Take whichever one comes to you first. You should get it. But to take a look at the numbers, to be clear about what we're talking about, in U.S. clinical trials with this Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it was found to be 72% effective at preventing COVID of any kind. And it was found to be 85% effective at preventing severe disease. Now, I know that's a little bit confusing, those two different numbers. So let's go through them. What they found, what Johnson & Johnson found, was that at preventing various kinds of COVID, from moderate COVID to severe COVID, to the kind of COVID that kills you, it was 72% effective. But when it came to preventing severe COVID, for example, the kind of COVID that would get you in the hospital or that would kill you, it was 85% effective. And that really is the number that we want to be paying attention to. As one doctor put it to me, with a vaccine, what we want is for it to keep you out of the hospital and out of the morgue. And an 85% um, effectiveness rate for for those things is really quite amazing. Um, there Now, I will say that that is not quite as high as the Pfizer and Moderna efficacy rates, but still very good. And this vaccine does have two distinct advantages. One, it's a single dose, way easier to get uh, a single dose out to people than to give them a dose and tell them to come back, you know, three or four weeks later. Another advantage is that it doesn't need to be frozen. It can just be shipped and stored at regular refrigeration. That's going to make it much easier, much more useful, for example, in some rural parts of the world. Julia? Yeah. Brilliant work been done by the scientists here. If you get the chance at one of these vaccines, you mm-hmm. take it. Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. That's for right. That. Yeah. All right, let's move on. President Biden set to provide details on the U.S. policy towards Saudi Arabia today. This after Friday's intelligence report suggesting Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman approved the operation to, quote, capture or kill the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Sanctions have been enacted against 76 individuals, but no direct measures against the Crown Prince. John Defterius joins me now. John, great to see you. Um, We said this earlier in the conversation with Christine Romans. That's politics. And it feels like the same situation here. Yeah, certainly. Real politique coming to the fore here, Julie, because of the strategic interests and trying to counterbalance Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, But a very shrill tone around U.S.-Saudi relations right uh, now. And there's calls, as you know, Julia, for Joe Biden to do a lot more. But look at the contrast between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Donald Trump was almost putting a bear hug around uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, hoping for $100 billion worth of military contracts and kept a very hard line uh, supporting Saudi Arabia against Iran. Joe Biden wants to end the war in Yemen, uh, is wanting to reopen talks with Iran and said he'll only speak to King Salman, but no sanctions, 
Not much of a surprise to me, though, Julia, because if you look at U.S. policy, they wouldn't do that at the top brass of Russia or China, where we have sanctions into play uh, as we speak. But uh, MBS could be accused of self-harm. So do you really need sanctions? And I'll tell you why. 2017, go back to the Ritz-Carlton roundup of 300 Saudi uh, millionaires and billionaires. They were partners with U.S., European and Asian investors into Saudi Arabia. Uh, They got burned in a very big way. 2018, the brutality of Jamal Khashoggi's uh, murder has left the international business community in shock. So here's the result. You take a look at foreign direct investment. Uh, It was much higher prior to the Crown Prince coming in with his new plan in 2016, the Vision 2030, and then seizing power as the Crown Prince the next year. $1.4 billion of FDI, it recovered to four to four and a half billion in the next couple of years. That's half the level Saudi Arabia is used to. So that speaks volumes. Then you look at foreign exchange reserves, all the earnings from the oil exports of Saudi Arabia, the number one exporter. They were hovering at $730 billion in 2015, and it's been a staircase lower, uh, down to around $450 billion by the end of 2020. What does it tell us? That Mohammed bin Salman is having to finance his own build-out of tourism development, infrastructure for Riyadh, the big neon project in the Northwest. This is somebody who was embraced, as you remember, Julia, 2017, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, Washington, Wall Street, City of London, all loved the reformer until those two incidents took place. And he's paid a heavy price for it as he tries to rebuild confidence in this 2030 vision. Yeah, well, he's got many years to do it, hasn't it? But it's challenging in the interim. John Defterio, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, has been moved to St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London by ambulance. He will be treated there for a pre-existing heart condition and an infection. Anna Stewart is outside the hospital for us now. Anna, great to have you with us. What more do we know? So we knew from last week from a statement from the palace that the Duke was being treated for an infection. We know that he was responding to that treatment and he still is. But the update was regarding this heart condition. Now, what they've told us is that he's undertaking testing and observation for a pre-existing heart condition. That's all we have. We do know that the Duke of Edinburgh was treated for a blocked coronary artery back in 2011. It's unclear whether this is in any way related. But as you probably saw from the pictures, the Duke was transferred from his private hospital in Marlebone, where he spent the last 13 nights here to St. Bartholomew's Hospital in the east of London. This is an internationally recognized hospital. It's particularly well known for cancer treatment, but also cardiac treatment as well. This is already the Duke of Edinburgh's longest stint in a hospital. He's 99 years old, just a few months shy of 100 years old. So of course, this and seeing him in an ambulance obviously raises concerns about his health. Julia. And any sign of family visits? What's the situation there? So last week, Julia, we saw Prince Charles uh, have a visit with the Duke of Edinburgh in the hospital in Marlebone. We have no idea whether he'll have any more visits from other members of the royal family while he's here. As you may know, Prince Philip has been spending much of the pandemic in Windsor Castle with the Queen in a very small bubble. Both the Queen and Prince Philip have had their vaccinations, but of course making sure that they're not exposed to too many extra people has been a priority for the palace. Um, But we'll keep our eyes peeled for any visitors. A very long stay for a 99-year-old man, so it wouldn't surprise me, of course, if we do see some people Mm. coming to see him this week. Julia? That's a challenge. Yeah, we wish him well. Anna Stewart in London there for us. Thank you so much for that.
an act of defiance in Hong Kong as authorities crack down on pro-democracy activists. Hundreds of protesters gathered outside a court after dozens of opposition figures were charged with sub subversion. It's the most aggressive action yet under Beijing's new national security law. Protesters, meanwhile, back on the streets of Myanmar after the deadliest day since the military coup last month. Security forces in multiple cities opened fire on demonstrators, killing at least 18, according to the UN. This comes as deposed leader Aung San Suu Kyi was charged with a third criminal offence in a court appearance via video link. All right, still to come here on First Move, Israel's rebound hints at huge pent-up global demand for travel. We're joined by the CEO of Booking.com and the company formerly known as TransferWise gets a rebrand. We speak to the CEO of Wise about the transformation that's more than just skin deep. Stay with us. Back to first move live from New York, where U.S. stocks look set to kick off the new month with solid gains. Chalk it up to a quantum of solace, perhaps, from steadier bond yields. Yes, I'm continuing the James Bond movie references today. U.S. 10-year yields have pulled back from the 1.6% levels hit last week. That, if you remember, was a one-year high. It's also a strong day for all the gold fingers out there, too, with metals starting the month with strength. Copper coming off its best monthly gain in 12 years. Oil also higher on continued hopes for rising demand, even as investors await this week's OPEC Plus meeting that could lead to an agreement boosting global surprise. Interesting for Saudi, of course, in those negotiations, given what's going on more broadly. A surge in bookings for domestic travel in Israel could herald a recovery in global tourism. The trend is being flagged by Booking Holdings, which owns Booking.com and Priceline. The signs of rebound follow a tough fourth quarter for Booking, which saw a 63% slump in sales. Israel has led the world in terms of vaccinations, and momentum is gaining for vaccine passports, too, to travel safely. Glenn Fogel is Chief Executive Officer and President of Booking Holdings and joins us now. Glenn, great to have you on the show. We've got lots to talk about today more broadly, but can we hone in first on what you're seeing in Israel? A reason to be excited and optimistic about the outlook, perhaps. Well, thank you for having me, Julia. And absolutely, with Israel's leading the world in those vaccines, and we absolutely saw as those vaccines have, have gone into people's arms, and then when a government lets go some of the restrictions on travel, we see an immediate uptick in travel. And we're seeing that in other parts of the world, too. So very good news. Can you give us a sense of what Im immediate uptick looks like? What kind of numbers are you seeing in terms of percentage increase? No, unfortunately, still very, very, very low. Mm. And uh, of course, Israel, small country, and not you know, there's domestic travel, but of course, people like to travel more than just within Israel. And I'll give you an example. The UK is a good one to look at because when Prime Minister Johnson last week came out with the plans to get out of that lockdown and allow international travel in May, we saw an immediate uptick. And of course, these are small numbers. We call them green shoots, but it's good to see it. And how far out, just to give us a sense, are people booking for the, the summer, for late summer? How much leeway are they, are they giving it when they're booking? Well, it's definitely summer. I mean, that's what people, they like to travel in the summer and the summer is the high season. And of course, we say summer, we always have to say Northern Hemisphere summer because we're mm. a very international company. So Northern <laughs> Hemisphere summer. 
So the Northern we definitely are seeing that pick up, and people are looking forward to hopefully being able to come back to some sense of normalcy. But of course, it's totally dependent on the rate of vaccinations and the rate of virus infections. Kind of a race between the two right now. And hopefully the and I, I'm, I'm confident that the vaccinations will win. It's just a question, though, how how soon will it take? And how flexible are you being with regards someone booking a hotel, booking flights and then saying, actually, when we get closer to it, they realize it's not for them. It's still not safe. They're uncomfortable. And then they want to perhaps push, push back their trip. How easily can right, they do right. that? Yes, that's so important. That's one of the great things about the booking.com system is that so much of the inventory is cancelable, completely right. free to cancel. I totally urge people, lock it up now, get these great prices, go get what you want. And if something were to come about that it wasn't possible for you to travel, you just cancel. How important do you think vaccine passports are going to be? And are you in favour of them? So, because there's some debate about the clarity that provides perhaps to the travel industry, but at the same time, ethical concerns, there clearly won't be people who've been vaccinated, there'll be many people that won't have been vaccine, um, who won't have received a vaccine by the summer. Where do you stand on uh, vaccine passports, Glenn? So here's the thing about that. I mean, we all know the travel industry has been so devastated. So anything that could get international travel back up and running would be a very positive thing for so many people whose lives financially have been so damaged. So I'm totally in favor of any technology that enables people to travel safely, that countries feel it's safe to let somebody come in because that person has been uh, gotten a vaccination and we can let them come in. And I hear this issue about it's not fair. And I say, mm. I get it, it's not fair when you're a kid in a small school and the teacher says nobody gets to eat their snacks until everybody has their snacks. That's fine for that. But this we're talking about here is trying to get the travel industry back and running. And the fact that it may take a little bit longer for some people to get the vaccination, we shouldn't prevent other people who've gotten it from going forward and traveling safely. But are you suggesting that there should be restrictions on allowing people who haven't been vaccinated? Or are you suggesting that you can have a vaccine passport, but if you haven't been vaccinated, it should, still should be OK to travel? Yeah. So here's the thing. It's up to every government to decide how do they want to do their travel restrictions and who do they want to let in or not. My point is, though, the idea of not letting people uh, of a government or somebody saying we shouldn't have any sort of proof that you are vaccinated and allow other countries to say they only want to let in people who have been vaccinated. That, to me, makes so much more sense than saying we're not going to have any of this technology to put forward vaccination passports because we think it's not fair. That's the point that I'm making. I think that as soon as we can prove that somebody is safe to travel, if a government says we'll let you in if you can prove it, I say, let's go. Talk to me as well about the home rental operations, because I know this is something that you've been focused on in Europe and part of your priorities for this year are developing that further in 2021. How an important piece of the business might this become? Well, there's no doubt that the pandemic definitely brought forward interest in going to a home instead mm -hmm. of a hotel. We saw that last summer uh, completely. Um, and that didn't trend for a long time. A lot of people have been thinking, gee, maybe a home, maybe a hotel, not sure. But the pandemic brought forward that interest. And certainly going forward, this coming summer, more people will be interested in it because they looked at it last year. So it's certainly an important part of the overall travel industry. And we, you know, we are one of the biggest players in that business right now. 
But for us, we say it's whatever you'd like. If you'd like a home, we've got that. If you've got hotels, you can choose that too. On our site, we put them together. You can compare and contrast and look at reviews for either one and decide what really fits your needs. Can we, let's tie all the threads of this together. I know it's tough because different nations are going at different speeds. Different parts of the world are uh, operating in terms of vaccines differently. But just as a CEO, when you're looking ahead, in your mind, what kind of time frame are you giving it to get even halfway back to what we were seeing before the pandemic hit in terms of global travel and then for full recovery? Just give us a sense of your timings here. So it's so interesting because I have asked that question every single time. I'm Last sure. week we did our things <laughs> call. Everybody, you know, my friend, everybody wants to know when, as if there's a light switch and what day does this light switch get flipped and it's all back the way it used to be. That's not the way it's going to happen. And we all know that it's entirely a function of a couple of days that are completely out of the control of any travel company, pretty much out of most, almost anybody, except the people who are either producing vaccines because a big factor is how fast are these vaccines being produced and how quickly are they getting distributed? And then governments in terms of how well can they do their logistics to get these vaccines into people's arms? And also what sort of restrictions do they want to have? At what point do they feel, okay, it's safe enough to allow people to travel or not? That's done by governments. Look, my hope is that it just happens sooner rather than later and that we all can go back to a, a life of normalcy. Yeah, that light switch is also about confidence for uh, travellers as well, isn't it? And we just have to wait and see. Glenn, great to get your perspective today. Glenn Fogel, Chief Executive Officer of Booking Holdings. So thank you. The market opens next. Stay with us. Plenty of joy and excitement at the Stock Exchange this morning. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running as we begin a new week and a new month on Wall Street. And as expected, we're seeing nice gains across the board. The S&P trying to bounce after two straight weeks of losses. March is traditionally a good month for the markets, despite all the volatility too. February was a profitable one for the bulls with the small caps, the hands-down winners. Take a look at that, up more than 6% in February alone. Bitcoin beginning the week with gains too amid a bullish new call from Citigroup. Citi says the cryptocurrency is at a tipping point and could become a preferred currency for global trade. Wow, I know a lot of people in the industry will argue with that. MicroStrategy also announced today that it spent another $15 million to buy Bitcoin recently. The CEO, Michael Saylor, if you remember, is a leading Bitcoin bull, urging other corporations to add crypto to their balance sheets. Now, checking other crypto names, Ethereum up more than 9%, as you can see in the session. Gains too for XRP and Litecoin. All right, IBM significantly expanding its hybrid cloud services that combine both private and public clouds. Today, the company officially launching IBM Cloud Satellite, enabling companies to build, deploy and manage their cloud services in any location. And joining us now, IBM President Jim Whitehurst. Jim, great to have you on the show. Just explain this concept to our viewers who might be a bit bamboozled. My understanding is it's bringing all the cloud capabilities to wherever you have the data. Yeah, exactly. It's one of the big issues with cloud computing is that, you know, it's by nature normally locked in large data centers that we all think about, these massive data centers that are in specific locations. Yet at the same time, there's this pull to the edge where you have more and more data at an edge. So a a video 
uh, feed that you actually want to do analysis on. And it's really hard to move all that data back to a centralized uh, data center. So you have all this functionality in a cloud, but you actually want to run it at the edge. And so that's what we're spanning now. We're taking all the capabilities of IBM's cloud, but because it runs on a common platform, we can run that all the way out at an edge. So a, a branch location or a factory floor, or frankly, an, an, another public cloud. So wherever there is compute resource, we can now bring our cloud capabilities to that place. So it literally allows you to have ubiquitous cloud anywhere. So where does this sit with the concept that I always think of when I think of IBM, which is this hybrid cloud um, setup where you have, and IBM has talked to uh, this show about it a lot, where we have people that are sitting on around 80% in average of their data on private um, systems in the private cloud, and then 20% of that now is migrated to the cloud. How does this idea of bringing the cloud to the edge and where the data is fit with that idea of maintaining some part of it in private and some part of it on public? And does it change where you think that's going? Well, I think what this does is this allows you to bring the benefits of what you think of as public cloud to your data center all the way out to the edge. And so, you know, so when you think about cloud computing, the benefits of it aren't just the fact that it's in a big centralized data center. It's the fact that you have common services that can be easily called and hyper automation, so you need fewer people. And that's a great uh, things that allow a cloud to run, you know, more efficiently, more cost effectively, makes it quicker for developers to develop. Well, now we're allowing you to bring that on-premise to your in your own data center all the way out to the edge. So now if you want a developer wants to call, you know, the XYZ open source database and then a, a machine learning algorithm to build an application quickly, they can do it on-premise, they can do it in an edge location, they can do it on a public cloud because we're basically bringing that set of capabilities wherever you want to run it. So we're bringing the the, both the features, the automation, the self-service capabilities of a public cloud, but we're allowing you to run that on-premise in your data center all the way out to the edge or a factory floor. I'm just trying to imagine in which sectors this would be truly transformative. I guess the financial services sector where they're very sensitive and for regulatory reasons they have to hold on to the data. Healthcare, I guess, is another great example. Is that sort of where you're going to be primarily focused or is this applicable to anybody that has data that they want to analyze in-house? Well, I, it's applicable to anyone that the characteristics of the application mean that you want to run it, you know, in-house. And that can mm. be, as you said, regulated industries. So whether that's financial services or healthcare or public utilities or government, there are a lot of areas where you have information where for regulatory reasons you can't or it's very expensive to try to run those on a public cloud. But that's also equally true if there's the characteristic of the application. So I use the idea of something that has a lot of a stream of video. Um, so if you have a stream of video, let's say looking at a weld on a factory floor and you're trying to analyze is that weld good or not, streaming all that data, you know, 5G, uh, you know, wirelessly to a, a point all the way up then to a cloud, that's a lot of data moving, where isn't it easier if you just move the application to the data? So there's a set of applications that can be in any industry that are data heavy, where you don't want to transmit that back and forth because of, uh, of latency or just the economic cost of doing that. So certainly there are regulated industries and use cases, but there are other use cases where just the nature of the application, you don't really want to try to move all of that to a public cloud. So it needs either case, being able to move your application to where the data is um, makes a lot more sense. And that's what we're enabling. Can I just get your wisdom, Jim, while I have you as well, on some of the, the information that came out of the SolarWinds hack hearing 
uh, last week, and it was questions being raised about where the data is most safe. Is it most safe in a fully cloud-operated environment versus having a hybrid setup where you have some data uh, on private cloud, some data in public? And I think the description used was a seam between those two things that make it perhaps more vulnerable than just it all being in the cloud. And another thing I think that that Microsoft suggested was if the hack takes place in-house, someone like a, a Microsoft or a Dell or an IBM can't trace where the problem existed if it's in-house versus if it was on the cloud, they could do it perhaps more easily in quicker. Jim, what's your take on that? Is it safer to have fully cloud versus hybrid? Uh, Frankly, I don't think the model of cloud really matters that much. I mean, look, the the big issue with with hacks is it's not, you know, spies coming in through the skylights. It's somebody checking the million different windows looking for one that's left unlocked. And so the issue is about how crisply you manage your infrastructure. So whether you manage it well, uh, you know, on a public cloud or you manage it well on a private cloud, you know, matters a lot and more than whether it's on a public or private cloud. You know, so we've been really focused on having one infrastructure, a common infrastructure we call OpenShift, which runs whether it's on premise, on the edge or on a cloud as the foundation on which to build applications. So you have one inherently secure platform. The problem happens again, if when you have you know, developers all over the place in an unmanaged way doing things and somebody, you know, leaves a, you know, a S3 bucket open or something like that, you know, here and there. It's the variety that gets you more than inherently where it runs, which is why we're very focused on one common platform, make sure that runs everywhere. Then you can avail yourself of clouds, but you have one security model, one security response team, you know, that can look across that that whole kind of framework. So it's less where it is and more about having a common framework and less variety um, in, in which there's more likely to be a mistake or a metaphorically a window left unlocked. So you have to trust your provider because that's ultimately the key in this is, is what you're saying. And, and that makes sense. Choose wisely. Jim, great to hear about what you're, uh, what you're doing. And thank you for joining us on the show today. Jim Whitehurst, president of IBM there. Thank you. All right, up next, Becoming Wise, the CEO of Cash Transfer Company on its rebrand. Stay with Welcome back to First Move, a new month, a new name for TransferWise, which will simply be known now as WISE. The UK fintech star made its name as a cheap and simple way to move money internationally. Now at 10 years old, it has 10 million customers moving over $6 billion a month in 55 different currencies. But now it's also offering additional services, including an international bank account and debit card. Joining us now is Tarvet Hinrinkus. He's the CEO and co-founder of WISE. Great to have you on the show. I have to say, as I was looking through all the different things that you um, provide to your customers, you're looking more and more like a challenger bank. Uh, Just talk to us about WISE and the vision for the company. So when we launched TransferWise 10 years ago, we started with one simple service, moving money between UK and mainland Europe. As we've grown through the years and gathered a customer base of 10 million customers, we realized that we're offering many more services. Today, you can use us as a consumer, as a business. We're offering services to other banks, and soon we'll have an investment account coming live in the UK. So we realized that the old name TransferWise is just becoming a little bit too small for us. So we realized going forward, make much more sense to make it a shorter, better name and just call ourselves WISE. 
which makes perfect sense to me. Just give me a sense of how much savings you're providing your customers, whether they're individuals, whether they're businesses, relative to some of the other big players, even if we just stick to the remittances business, the payments business, for example, I mean, the obvious competitors here, MoneyGram, um, Western Union. How much more of a saving do you provide and how are you doing it? If we look at the U.S. alone, and the U.S. consumers are losing about $8.7 billion in exchange rate markups and other fees every year. So wow. using TransferWise, you'll be able to serve quite a lot of money. It, it goes for both businesses and consumers all around the world. Why? Why are they losing so much money? I think for most people, when they look at exchange rates, they're, they're frightened off. And even if they see something that says zero commission, they get a huge added cost in the in the bid offer spread between the currencies that they're offered. Are you just trying to strip back and give greater clarity over how people exchange money around the world? Zero commission or calling it free is probably the biggest lie that we're, that we're seeing other businesses offer out there. When, when we started the business, that was the main reason we got upset. We saw that banks are actually applying an exchange rate markup two, three, four, sometimes 5% above the mid-market exchange rate. So we realized that what consumers really need is transparency. So we started with a different model where we're upfront about the total we charge. And so we can provide a service in order to cheat than what you get from competing services. So you are trying to take on the banks here. They are the, the competitors in your mind. The incumbents here are mostly banks. If we ask our customers what are used before, most common areas we used before. So when you open up international bank accounts and you have a debit card that, can, that people can use, are you targeting that towards international travellers, for example? Because as we've seen over the past year, um, there's not been a lot of that. So when we, we think about what we're doing going forward, we're thinking about this as international banking. It's actually a niche which hasn't really been served by anyone in the, in the past. We look at people and businesses who are doing business internationally or people who used to be living between different countries, which hope will be happening again in the future. So it's kind of a new category of international banking where we help people who have needs in multiple currencies in multiple countries. Now, the other thing I noticed, and uh, there's IPO rumours, so you can address those in a moment, but something else I thought was quite interesting is a potential avenue, particularly in light of what we've seen here in the United States with things like Robinhood and the retail investor community. You've signalled an interest, perhaps, in offering investment services, getting regulatory approval in the United Kingdom. What can you tell me about your ambitions there? So we realise that we have customers keeping... 4 billion in deposit transfer wise. And so it kind of makes sense ask them how do they find it? And the biggest question they came back is how can I earn some kind of return on the deposit we have with you? Mm. So we've been looking into and we'll be introducing a, a very simple investment account. It'll be live this year starting with UK. So not necessarily investing in things like stocks. It's very simple products, I'm assuming. Low risk. Just to start with, it's going to be very simple indeed. Hmm, interesting. Okay, talk to me about IPO rumours. Can you tell me anything at all? A listing has always been on our long-term roadmap, and there have been rumours about this for years. We'll talk more about if and when we'll have something specific to say. What's the decision-making process, though, versus staying private? 
or, or deciding to go public? Just in your mind, as someone who's growing a business, you've clearly done incredibly well over the last decade and you're still in the, a huge growth phase. Is it about money because you're profitable now? So how do you make a choice between going public or, or staying private, particularly at this moment in time? When building TransferWise, we've really been mostly guided by what's best for our customers. So also think about whether we will be public or when. We try to think about it. We try to think about what's in it for our customers. So that process is still ongoing. <laughs> Staying tight-lipped. I, uh, I hear your message loud and clear. Talk to me about certif. No, I get the pronunciation right. Certific. You're trying to take what you've done in terms of revolutionizing financial services and taking an approach for COVID and testing. What is this product that you're now working on? So I co-founded Certific, which uses science and technology to make the world a safer place for live events, sports, travel and social gatherings. We realized that there is a way to make use of science and technology to make trustable home testing faster, cheaper and better. In a similar way, as we made money for a fast return better otherwise. Come back and talk to us about this soon, please. I don't know how you are fined all the time, but you clearly do. Great to have you with us, and thank you for explaining what you're doing. The CEO and co-founder of WiseM. I just want to apologise to our viewers if there were a few sound issues on that interview. Okay, a major blow to Australia's wine industry. How wine became a victim of a spat over the origins of COVID-19. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. China's foreign investment in Australia fell 62% last year compared to 2019. That's according to a new study by the Australian National University. It comes after relations between the two nations soured over the origins of the coronavirus. Angus Watson explains how Australia's winemakers got caught in the middle. Taste the difference. 2015, Australia and China sign a free trade agreement and Aussie winemakers are among the big winners. The removal of tariffs supercharged a growing industry. Then, following a single statement, it dried up. It's important that we learn the lessons of how this pandemic started so we could move on any future pandemic wherever it starts. That call for an inquiry into the origins of COVID-19 left a bad taste in the mouths of the Chinese government. And soon after, China hit Australian export products with blocks and huge tariffs. Number two diplomat in Australia, Wang Xining, said China felt like Caesar betrayed by his friend Brutus. Temporary duties of up to 212% were slapped on Australian wine, and a probe opened into alleged Australian dumping of cheap product on the Chinese market. Margins on margins. So it could be quadrupling of our price which pretty much puts us out of the marketplace. In December 2019, Australia exported over $134 million worth of wine to China. In December 2020, just $3 million. Bruce Tyrrell says the wines from his family vineyard in the Hunter Valley north of Sydney are particularly pleasing to the Chinese palate, fruity and acidic. Just like his government in Canberra, Tyrrell believes the rising taste for Australian wine in China defies Beijing's accusation that Australia has been dumping its cheap stuff. 
And if we were dumping, why did the average price of our exports to China go up by 30% in four years? That just makes the dumping accusation complete rubbish. Someone's, someone's dreamed it up. Before the tariff hike on Australian product, only France was shipping more wine to China. Emmanuel Bria, a small part of that, a Frenchman with a love for Australian wine. He says Chinese customers love it too, so much so he only sells Australian at his shop in Hong Kong. But he's had to put his business shipping wine from Melbourne to Shanghai on ice. It was a lot of demand for, for this wine, but not anymore. <laughs> just hoping that it won't last forever, and it's just for a short period of time and things will get better. Until then, other countries eye up the gap in the Chinese market. With Australia kicked out of China, uh, I would think the Europeans would be in there like a rat up a rafter. And in the immediate term, Australian winemakers will look to recoup some of their lost sales close to home. As bars and restaurants here reopen after COVID-19 lockdowns. Angus Watson in Sydney, Australia. Plenty of wine and champagne corks popping last night. There was a royal winner at last night's Golden Globes. The crown. Sweeping the TV categories, the crown won four awards, including best drama actor and actress. The director of Nomadland, Chloe Zhao, became the first Asian woman and second woman overall to win best director. Her film also winning best motion picture drama. She looked so happy. Tina Fey and Amy Poehler hosted the show put on by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association with the nominees video chatting from home. And from the Golden Globes to Fireball Meteors, the lots of video from doorbell cameras capturing the moment at about 10 o'clock last night across the UK. Fireball meteors are exceptionally bright, can often be seen over a wide area. That's like a shooting star from a Disney movie. All right, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. But for now, that's it for me. Stay safe as always and connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.